this is the second last of my tales, for now at least. I'm going to try and get them published, so if anyone has any tips or connections, don't be shy. Also, it's never too late to add a rating or a comment. This is a simple father and son story, set in Ireland and in London. I hope you enjoy it. Janus. He remembered the skies. Well, perhaps not the skies themselves, but the way his father had described them. There was the vivid cobalt of the high summer when they climbed in the McGillicuddy's reeks. They lay on their backs on a large boulder, staring into the endless blue, and his father explained about the way light is diffracted to give the sky its fabulous deep colouring. And there was the glinting velvet dark of the cold autumn night in Killery Harbour, when the meaning of the name Milky Way was spilled out across the dome of the heavens, a river of frost flowing through the firmament, delineating our galaxy. His father told him how light, though travelling impossibly fast, may still take millions of years to reach our eyes. There is the past, he had said. The night sky is pure history. Then there was the green-grey, brooding, mutinous sky of a freezing afternoon on Bray Head, as a storm from the west clashed with a cold front from the east, and snow came hurtling down from the roof of the world onto their soft Irish heads. His father told him to look at the flakes that had landed on his upturned palm, to wonder at their crystalline form, each one unique, before they melted or were blown away by the piercing wind. And, of course, there was the roll-call of cloud formations to which his father had introduced him, in the back garden of their house in Dorky, when he was playing outside. He was beckoned to be instructed in the scudding cotton wool of Alto Cumulus, the high ice feathers of Cirrus, and the black malevolence of Nimbostratus. All the combinations, all the variations. He had thought his father a meteorologist, but he wasn't. He remembered the skies, but the rest, that was where it began to get difficult. His own life had been a gradual distancing from everything with which he'd grown up. Here he was in London, not caring any longer when he was mistaken for an Englishman. His Irish syntax, his quiet lilt, buried beneath the hard edge of the city's argot. And when was the last time he had set foot in his native land? His thoughts were still capable of ranging over the landscape, from the dewy waters of the Shannon to the cliffs of Clare to the savage blast of the North Atlantic on Horn Head. He was well-travelled in Ireland, there was no doubt, but it had all been long ago. He and Ireland had settled comfortably into permanent separation. His life, such as it was, was here. It was an adequate reward for the years of effort. He was alone, it was true, but he had a fine residence in Kentish Town, a two-storey house in a road of brightly coloured houses on Leverton Street. He frequented, but did not outstay, his welcome in the Pineapple Public House. He had friends at the bar and friends who called round. He had achieved some standing in his community and he had risen to a senior rank in the public sector. He felt his working life was useful and that he had always considered the duty to help other people in his choice of career. It was slowing now, to be sure. He was preparing himself for a less hectic existence. He was established in middle age. He did not think of his father. Not ever, not often. But now, disturbingly, he had been summoned. They were not officially estranged. There was still the 
Christmas card ritual and the odd phone call just to check up. He hadn't noted any impending crisis or received information about declining health. And even though his mother had died ten years ago, there were contacts, acquaintances, who would surely have passed on any message of concern. Was this, then, just a whim, a caprice of his father? His behaviour was certainly less controlled now that his wife was no longer there to restrain the wilder flights of fancy. His father continued to walk in the Wicklow Hills on his own, in all weathers, oblivious to the risks for a man of his age. He drank too much. He neglected the upkeep of the house. He told the rector to go to hell once the funeral was done and after he was encouraged to take his wife's place as an active member of the parish. He had some friends yet, but others he had turned away. Eccentric, unpredictable, that's what was said of him. It was all noted, all filed away in his head, and he hadn't felt the need to explore any further, to seek out more news than that which came his way without effort. A disturbing effect of the summons was an unavoidable scrutiny when he looked in the mirror. It proved that his father was rising there to greet him. There was the straggling grey hair, which, no matter how well controlled by his frequent trips to the barber, always threatened to untidy his appearance with its loose strands. There was the high forehead, getting higher year on year as the wisps retreated across the dome of his skull, still unruly, still stringy and brittle, but unveiling more and more of the pate. There were the pale blue eyes, doleful and large, which could betray his emotions, appealing to whomever he was speaking with beyond the precision of his words. And there it was, incontrovertible genetic evidence, the family nose, the nose of generations, protruding with aquiline elegance from his distinguished face, when he was feeling confident, but erupting from the plane of his ugliness like an ill-conceived folly when he was full of self-doubt. How like his father he had become. In those moments of realisation he felt distanced from the image in the mirror. He did not want to acknowledge the biting similarity, the way his frame had that familiar half-stoop, the way his plump body was perched upon spindly legs that seemed too thin to bear such weight, the way his hands clasped and unclasped with a mind of their own, giving him the demeanour of an anxious priest. It was hopeless. Welcome, father. Inevitably he seeped into view, unwanted but not to be denied. Well... This was the physical reality, but it didn't mean his character was the same. It didn't require him to adopt his parents' habits just because of family resemblance. Do we carry history in ourselves? When the mirror reminds us of the linking generations, does that also mean that the past is preserved in us? Nature and nurture and subsequent experience, they dance about us, they burn within us. How can we tell the origin of any particular aspect of ourselves? I blame my parents, I blame myself, I blame the world. It was all interconnected, matted with complexity, impossible to untangle. But for all his thinking, for all his acceptance of the power of the past, did that mean he must heed the summons? His father wanted to see him. Was it really such an unreasonable request? Of course not. But this was a disturbance, a shaking of his equanimity. He had not been planning any visit to Ireland, and the fact that he knew that he would go made him feel uneasy. He had always been uneasy in his father's presence. There, he had unearthed the truth of it. 
His father was a creature best considered from a distance. There had always been an awkwardness between them. He had wanted to please his father, and so had remained mostly silent in his presence. His father was the one who talked, who pronounced and advised and insisted. He was the receiver, and had never, to the best of his recollection, entered into any kind of argument. His father spoke, and mostly he had listened. Their relationship had always been mitigated or arbitrated by their location. The landscape had enabled silence as a comfortable continuation of speech, and they had usually been in motion across it, walking round from Sandy Cove into Scotsman's Bay or striding along the East Pier in Dunleary. This was expression in itself. It wasn't that he had lacked opinion or a healthy range of emotional responses to his father's encouragements and admonishments. No, he had merely let his whereabouts speak for itself. With other people, of course, he could be loquacious, lucid, charming, witty, occasionally profound and intermittently hilarious. But he had learned all this afterwards, in the company of peers. In answering the summons, he would return to the habits of childhood. He would, he knew, defer to the senior will. He would listen. He would absorb. He would not torment himself with inner debate. He would go. That oldest of journeys would be made again, one more lost sheep of the diaspora coming home, an old identity to be dusted down and given another spin. Being a man of means, he would fly from London City Airport. When he had first arrived in London, it had been by way of a slattery's coach on the ferry from Dublin Port to Holyhead and the long road south through Anglesey and the Welsh mainland, and then past the towns he had still never visited properly, Crewe, Rugby, Milton Keynes. There was another England. But although his mind was frequently full with contemplation of the wild places within his reach, he had rarely ventured far from the fringe of the capital. Did he like living in London? His father had asked him that once long ago, when he had first returned at Christmas. Dublin served up a grand illusion in those days, at that time of year, that it was full to bursting with merry young men and women, buying rounds of drinks for their friends in the pubs, he remembered. Ah, yes, to fight your way to the bar and back in Davy Burns, or the Bailey, or over to the International, downstairs perhaps, or upstairs at the Palace. How could he still recall those names so easily? And then, two weeks later, Dublin was a ghost town, peopled only by those who could not or would not flee to a better life. Of course, the years rattled by, and Ireland put on its tiger skin, and many, perhaps most of the people he knew who had left with him, for what was there to stay for, returned to find employment and sometimes riches in the land of their birth. But not he. The answer he gave to his father was unequivocal. Yes, I like living in London. It is the centre of something, and it is too deep to reach the bottom. So you'll drown, then? I don't mind if I do. Had he drowned? Well, he had been assimilated. He drank red wine by the glass in the pineapple pub, and everyone took him for a city gent. He never corrected the assumptions that people made, He liked to disappear in their erroneous conclusions. He was a spy, really, that's what he felt, although there were no reports to file. He liked to walk up the back roads of Kentish Town and emerge by the bull and last to cross the road into Parliament Hill Fields. He would walk on past the tennis courts and the café and then right up to the top of the hill and that splendid view over London. 
you could stand where Karl Marx had stood, contemplating the future of capitalism and the prospects for revolution. The great grey indifference of London spread out before him, too vast for the soldiers of privilege ever fully to destroy the hopes of the damned. He had, in his time, toyed with politics, but in the end he had retreated to his comfortable and insulated life after a brief spell working for the Union. He was not a revolutionary. He was a disinterested observer. He knew this. He felt it as he looked around him on a summer's day at the crown of Parliament Hill. Children shrieked with excitement as their kites tangled with each other, as they rolled down the hill, as they raced so fast they lost their footing and tumbled. Jacks and Jills all joyfully rampaging in the wild open air. Footballs kicked back and forth, picnics laid out on the slopes, families, couples, groups of older people, tourists and the odd loner, watching but connected to no one, without intimate involvement with anyone, just looking on, standing at the side, smiling sorrowfully at the vigour and bliss of life. They were the ambassadors of loneliness, and he was their leader. And yet... Only a flicker of mournful reflection passed across his consciousness. He knew his failings, but he loved the place where they were made manifest. He never felt that he should not venture out onto the heath, to rove up to the pergola, to meander through the woods and stroll past the bathing ponds. There was profound contentment to be had here. Something about London's capacity for inclusion enabled him to accept the limitations of his own personality and the way that it had shaped his existence. There, he had found it, the reason why Ireland was for the most part somewhere to be avoided. In Ireland he came face to face with judgment and with failure. In Ireland he was a middle-aged man who had never married, innuendo in every sentence uttered within his earshot. In Ireland he was a man conspicuous with his lack of offspring. In Ireland he was the apparatchik of a foreign power, barely Irish at all, a diluted identity, suspect, peculiar, irregular. But here, in London, here in the multi-layered spaces of a limitless possibility, there was so much less scrutiny, so much less probing, less concern, less engagement, less human touch. And he did not like human touch. But he would go. He would do his duty and visit his father. He would open the book of the past and endure its harsh remonstration. There was pain, certainly, but buried beneath the aches and twinges that he had come to expect with the onset of old age. He went downstairs more slowly and gripped the banister with slightly more anxiety than before. He tried to acknowledge in his mind that something had changed more significantly, but he also tried to deny it because he simply wanted to get on with his life, his life as it had become, and it wasn't a bad life. Some people made their arrangements announcing their imminent demise, making sure that funerals were paid for, wills were watertight, and everyone far and near could trace the stages of decline, symptom by symptom. Well, he was not like that. He wasn't going to lie to anyone, but he wasn't going to sit and wait for the reaper to collect him. He wasn't going meekly. He was thrashing about in the ongoing mess of reality. Yes, that's what he was doing. And damn them, damn them all, and damn the horses they rode into town. He was going to continue to exasperate the shroud wavers and frustrate the busybodies. Not with rudeness, no. Not with disdain or contempt, but with reckless panache. 
He looked at his surroundings. The house he had lived in for sixty years, where he had been a husband and a father and a widower and now a cancer patient. What was it about dust? Dust was everywhere and dust was mostly human skin and so the dust was mostly him. Sixty years of discarded cells. No matter that he now had a cleaner who vacuumed and dragged the cloth along the surfaces, there was still so much dust, unless, of course, it was his eyesight that was failing. No reason to believe that wouldn't buckle along with everything else. Visions of dust. The haze of fading. But the bottles were real. Three empty bottles of paddy in the living room. Well, a man needed recourse to the comforts of hard liquor, especially when his body was at war with itself. You shouldn't drink so much, they all said. But why on earth not? Sure wasn't his liver the one organ that was still functioning perfectly. Eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we are catapulted into the sewers of oblivion and there won't be any blessed Irish whisky there. But he could perhaps clear them away. Especially as Mrs Walker, Mrs Orinthia Walker, would no doubt pay a visit. And although she wouldn't say anything, the hint of disapproval would nestle in the corner of her voice. Mrs Walker. How did all that start? He hadn't been looking for a relationship. He hadn't been looking for a friendship. Other people had become mild amusements to be kept at arm's length. But Mrs Walker, or, as he called her, and which she found intensely irritating, had announced herself and elbowed him out of the doorway of his own life. He had known her for years, of course, or, more precisely, he had known of her. She had been a friend of his wife's, and he had exchanged the vapid pleasantries that are wrapped around hello and goodbye for God knows how many years. She had become a useful protection against the religious predations of that old bastard, the rector, who had wanted to pull him into the mangy cobwebs of holy truth, the local Church of Ireland temple of stupidity, while he wasn't having any of it. And he had told the rector where to put his condolence, his concern, and his invitation to partake of mumbo-jumbo. His wife had sung in the choir. That had brought her a certain pleasure. But even she professed no belief in any of it, no faith in the resurrection of the body and the life eternal. And yet, for all his hostility, he couldn't stop the self-righteous old monster from reaching out to him and knocking on his door every time he was passing. One day, it was Orr who had opened the door and had startled the unctuous priest. She told him that she herself was administering to all of his needs and that further inquiries of a religious nature were not needed. Of course... This had led to no end of gossiping by the curtain twitcherati of Dorky Village. But they could go and shove their malicious curiosity up their rector. He and Orr were an item. An item in the sense of companionship, in the sense of cultural exploration, sharing the joys of the less demanding sections of the Wicklow Way, but also, cancer permitting, of the odd screw and cuddle. And she wasn't bothered too much by his dying. For months she had been the only one who knew... All she really seemed to object to was his drinking. But as he tended to drink alone, at home, and as they spent at least twice as much time in her neat little apartment round by Collymore, he could lie in a relatively guilt-free way about cutting down. But these bottles, they'd have to go out into the recycling more swiftly than his habit would like. He used to derive a certain frisson of lonely desperation from watching the empties stack up and roll around the stone floor of the front room. Clang! You alcoholic from a long line of alcoholics, they used to say. But now, with Orr fellating him at least once a week, he probably should try to make sure his semen reeked less of whisky and more of fresh fruit salad. 
He wasn't seeing her for lunch today. Normally they'd go out for lunch every other day during the week and spend the whole weekend in each other's company. They were careful not to overdo it, though, which was why they were quite happy to have regular days to themselves. But today was a break day out of sequence. He had to pop into the village and pick up some more pointless medication prescribed by his well-meaning but over-anxious GP Sally O'Dwyer. She had once briefly dated his son, but no magic had developed and they went their separate embarrassed ways. No surprise there, his son wasn't exactly the dating type. His son... Some thinking was required, because the reason for not seeing Orr today was the arrival of his son, back in Ireland for the first time in years. He had had only one child, a boy, born when he was in the prime of life. His marriage was strong and all was well with the world. But he had struggled as a father, having assumed it would come easily in the way that most other things had come easily. He had escaped his own family with their demons, their violence and their raging alcohol-fueled wars of attrition. He had stepped out of that life in a determined and a never-to-look-back fashion, which had won him as many admirers as detractors in the petty, narrow, vicious world of Dublin Protestantism. He had gone to Trinity and taken a degree. Taken being the operative word for any learning he had acquired was by way of his own hard work and not the lazy, conservative, tawdry eccentricity that passed for intellectualism in the shabby halls of the university. Then he had become a teacher, coaxing young shoots of curiosity in the minds of his charges. Excelling, so he thought, so he was told, in helping them to excel. But in the throes of his confidence, neglecting, he supposed, his own son, his own reticent, taciturn, unfathomable son. They would stride out into the great Irish wilds, and he would list, explain and instruct, but what came back was so very little. They would sit in silence, they would walk in silence, they would help themselves to extra silence. He was proud, as any father would be proud, when his boy glided past every milestone. But the child had an extraordinary sense of containment that allowed for only minimal shows of affection or meaningful exchange. He had signalled early his intent to be distant and kept his promise as the years spilled away. Not even his own mother's death had brought them closer, as he had hoped fervently that it might. The compensation for the loss of love could have been the late kindling of friendship between father and son. Alas, no. He had come, he had done his duty, he had nodded and listened and shaken hands. He had been practical, considerate and fiercely reserved, returning with all due decorum but no unbuttoning of the self to his vague and guarded London conduct. An absence wrapped in sorrow inside an enigma. But life, there it is, accept what you must. His son did not want him to intrude upon the quiet melancholy of his contentment and he had to respect that. There was communication of a perfunctory sort, the occasional phone call, the birthday and Christmas cards, the etiquette of sealed regard, of still waters running, not so much deep as uncharted. Ach, but what was he supposed to do with all of that? He had wanted a closeness that perhaps his own limitations were never going to foster. For all his brilliance as a teacher, he had been a poor parent. He would just have to live with that and acknowledge there would be no change now, not even after this afternoon's meeting. And what a bizarre arrangement he had come up with for that. To meet, not at the house, like any sane person would expect, but on a particular bench, in a particular location, on the path above the Vico Road overlooking Killiney Bay. 
It was, as luck would have it, a sunny, blazing day, and he had wanted to meet his son in a place where they could both let the breeze carry away their inner turmoil. He would simply tell him that he was dying, that Orr would look after the funeral, that he could, if he would be so good, recite a short poem, that he would receive half of his assets, and that he hoped that the rest of life would be as happy and fulfilling as any father could wish for his son. Then they would shake hands, and he would watch his boy, grown to be a man, his boy still, his child. He would watch him walk away for the last time into the future. An old man sits on a park bench. He is wearing a cream-coloured sports jacket, a white shirt and brown corduroy trousers. His shoes are scuffed. He sits with his eyes closed, enjoying the warm sunshine. When he sat down, he was tense and nervous, but he begins to relax. He leans back and feels the hard wood of the seat support his frame. He opens his eyes, the familiar that does not lose its wonder, the shimmering sea, with only light breakers nestling the beach. They say that on a good day you can see as far as Wales, but he's never been able to make it out. And he prefers the fabulous suggestibility of an open horizon, unbroken by landmass, the Irish Sea, our sea, the one across which so many have sailed to get away from so much. But he has never left, not for more than a week at a time at any rate. He is rooted here, an East Coast denizen, a temperate rainy man with the occasional sunny spell. He lets his eyes drink in the full panorama of Kalini Bay. There is Dorky Island, sheltering Collymore Harbour from the swell. There is the Martello Tower and the ruined church, and the red and white bands of the Muglin's lighthouse, and there is the green chugging dart train emerging from the tunnel, revealing to its passengers for the umpteenth time the great calming curve of the bay. There is the white rock bathing place and the pebble and sand mix of the beach rolling on to Bray, and above it Bray Head. And he draws his eyes back along the coast again, from Shank Hill to Kalini Station and Kalini Hill, and all the rich and famous names who isolate themselves here behind security walls to pretend that only they may view the sea. But this park has been here for longer, and it will endure. A younger man approaches. He is tentative and reluctant. He stands before the first man and they exchange a few words. The older man extends his hand, and it is taken in the old familiar gesture, the safe greeting, the polite and manly acknowledgement of the other. They sit then, mostly in silence, and watch the light slowly dimming down over the bay, their bay now, and the few words that fall are heeded, are accepted and retained by each. There is, it might be said, at least a loosening of tension. The protectiveness that guards and shackles the past is, if only temporarily, unlocked. There is perhaps an opening up, an airing of memory, one where bitterness, though it cannot be discarded, may be dulled by time, and time, though it cannot be paused, may, on occasion, be inhabited more completely. <laughs>